0: Welcome to the IOG Podcast. Today we're going to be discussing living care. I'm David Ashley and I work for Mark Bates Limited Insurance. I've worked in and around direct payments for many years in various roles. I've also been an active member of the London Self-Directed Support Forum Organising Committee for over 15 years.
1: I'm Rachel Harkin. I'm Head of the Employment Advice Services at Independent Living Group Trading as IOG Support. I'm passionate about providing individual employees with the support that they need by any means. But for the purposes of our podcast conversations, I tend to come at it from the legal perspective with a specific focus on employment law.
0: Great. Thanks, Rachel. So living care. We're not making life easy for ourselves, are we? Nope. <laughs> so, um We've talked already, haven't we, in um, our first podcast, we talked about the um, Tomlinson-Blake case. Um, and I think it's relevant to mention that here. You know, that gave us a steer, didn't it? It, let, it, it created um, some clarity around what counts as working time, at least for the purposes of the national minimum wage regs, um, specifically in relation to PAs who are sleeping in, who are working through the night in some form or another. So we've got that clarity. And it's an obvious assumption to make that that has, some, uh, has an impact then when we're talking about living care. But I think before we kind of fire off into there and, and, and kind of attack that subject, I think we need some definitions. Uh, you know, we've talked about this many times. I've, you know, from working in direct payments, I'm aware of it. I know you're, your team are aware of it from answering, taking calls the The definition of living care is is a problematic one that we really need to nail down what we mean by it and live in as opposed to perhaps doing like week on week off two week on two week off long stay shifts which are different which have you know create different implications around how we can treat our pas so um live in being somebody who lives permanently treated as residing permanently in the home. Is, is the def- definition I think we'll, we'll agree on that we try and use and that we'll certainly use for the purpose of this podcast. And maybe a long stay shift being a situation where the PA goes somewhere else when they're not on shift after perhaps a week or two weeks and, and lives somewhere else, isn't, isn't permanently residing in the uh, individual employer's home. Are you happy with that definition? Does that, does that make sense as a starting point?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And particularly when we think about National minimum wage, and as you you mentioned the Tomlinson Blake case, if we're talking about long shift patterns, it means that we don't have to worry about paying national minimum wage for the sleepover element of that role. You know, yes, they're there at the property, but they're asleep, they're not actively engaged in activities. So we don't need to worry about national minimum wage at all. We do, however, need to analyse what kind of work they're doing during the course of the day and make sure that they're paid appropriately for that. Now, It's interesting to note that when we put it into the other category that you were just talking about, where the individual genuinely resides with the employer, then we have a different case altogether when it comes to national minimum wage, because we have got Section 57 of the National Minimum Wage Regulations provides us with an exemption from national minimum wage where the individual Works well, actually, the, where the worker essentially is a member of the family or is treated as such and resides in the family home of the employer. There is an expectation that the worker would share in tasks and activities of the family, and of course, in being treated as one of the family, we need to have regard to the provision of that accommodation, the, the provision of meals, all of that must be provided for without deductions from the worker's salary. And in doing this, in sharing the home and sharing leisure activities and time with the family, treated as as if they were one, let's say even having their own bedroom, their own space, maybe sitting watching the telly together. If we have this kind of a setup where there's genuine residence, national minimum wage simply does not apply. So that's one of the reasons that you'll find if you call through to ILG, one of the first questions we're going to be asking when. somebody calls and uses the expression live in we're going to want to get down to well what do you mean by that and uh, then we'll start to apply the law to the facts as you explain it to us
0: right fantastic okay so live in we're happy we're clear on so when we're talking live in we're talking resides permanently at the home and we're saying that there is actually exemption from national wage regs altogether yeah. in that situation yes. right okay Good. Um, But quite often people aren't referring to that, are they? I think they are, in in many cases, referring to long-stay shift work, where we do have to start looking at the work they're doing, when they're working, and therefore we have to be a bit more um, careful about budgets, how much money we've got to cover that support. Um, Okay, great. So National Wage and Working Time Regs, they're the big piece of legislation that apply here, Rachel, and, and we are... In the course of these podcasts, at the moment, we're talking about some of the thorny issues. We've just done, recorded one on employment status. We've looked at some of the uh, the sleeping judgment. We're talking about living care. We haven't got time today to really drill into the national wage as a piece of legislation, but we will refer to it. Similarly, the working time regs. We can't go into it in great, greater depth, but it is something we've discussed we will probably do. Um, just We will have to just refer to them today. But for the purposes of... Talking about living care or long-stay shift work, I think the working time regs are are fairly instructive, are they not, in terms of providing a framework within which we we have to structure our work patterns for PAs.
1: I'm going to challenge you now, David.
0: Go for it. What do you
1: know of the key rights that come from the working time regulations?
0: Well, I'm definitely not looking at a screen at the moment that hasn't listed. That's what I can tell you. So, uh, But no, I'm kidding. Um, yeah, I, I, I struggle sometimes to remember all of these. I, I like to remember I, – I, there's a couple of things I remember from the working time regs. One is that there's an overriding duty to structure your employees' work patterns in a manner that is safe. And that, that I like to remember that obligation because it's, it's similar to that kind of obligation of creating a safe work environment. And if you start to think of it like that, I think it's important because what the working time regs are is – they are an instruction to an employer that you have to keep your employees safe and that your, the way you structure their work and the, and, the, and the hours they work and the rest breaks is dictated to you by the working time regs. So the rights I often remember, and they're probably, I'm sure many people listening will remember, is the 48-hour max is a big one. And that always sticks in your head because in, in the UK, as I understand it, work time regs come from working time directive in Europe, and there is this 48-hour... Maximum week weeks work that in the UK we can opt out of. So you'll will be familiar that there's an opt out agreement if you want to work more than forty eight hours and you agree to it. You can't be pressured into it, but you can opt out of it in the UK. Although, as I understand it, not anywhere else in Europe, which is interesting. um I understand there is an eight hour night average for night workers. You can't work more than eight hours on average overnight if you are technically working. And I appreciate you're going to be able to explain more about when somebody is working as a night worker or not. Um, If they are, they should have a health assessment. I believe that comes from the working time regs. Um, There's a couple more that I remember. So daily rest, um, I think it's 11 hours uh, consecutive rest in every day and every full 24-hour period. And then there's weekly rest, which is a full day off. Often comes um, upsets people or or can be a problem. So weekly rest, you have to have at least one day off um, in a week or perhaps I think you can extend that to having two days off in two weeks. And what's the other one? What's the one I'm forgetting? What is the one I'm? For- oh, twenty minutes, twenty minute rest break after six hours work. Again, one which I remember because it's tempting to think as a layman to think I have to have a twenty minute break within a six hours six hour period of work. But actually, I think you can correct me if I'm wrong. You can actually work six hours nonstop, but as long as you then have twenty minute break. Is that right? That's right. Have I missed anything?
1: No, oh, those are the key ones. Yeah, there's okay. some <laughs> tweaks and changes depending on, yeah. the, you know, the age of the worker. And of course, there's a lot to dive into with each, of, each one of those. But it's really great. Those key uh, rights, you've totally nailed it. And those are the ones that I would be asking anyone to keep very much at the forefront of the mind when we're looking at working patterns, whether it's living or not.
0: Brilliant. And we have actually documents that we will, if you have a look at the RG website where this podcast is hosted, although you can find it elsewhere. You will find all the associated docs, and then we do have a really fantastic uh, work time regs document that just summarises those main rights. I think you probably wrote that, Rachel. To be fair, it's a decent document. We'll make sure that's underneath this recording. So, despite, I mean, if you look, if you look at those regs, I've, I have thought this before. I know we talked about it. it you know, they don't really leave much room for either living care or long stay shift work, whichever one. Let's just say living care for the purpose of this chat, how can a PA be asked to work for an entire week? They can't, according to those regulations, can they? They can't work and have 11 hours consecutive rest. They're not going to have the benefit of 24 hours off, even in a seven-day period in a lot of cases. So how is that working? You know, I, I mean, I understand... There is a desire to have one person continuity of care, the same carer. We mentioned at the very end of the last podcast, the Chatfield Robert case, where we were talking about employment status and the reason they ended up in the situation they did is because they were very, very keen to have one person, one carer, living care, as they described it, supporting their elderly father. That continuity was really important in that case and is in many cases. How? How? I mean, again, we again, it's a pattern, isn't it? It's social care requirements what we want really kind of uh, rubbing up against employment legislation so how does just on the working time breaks how do we get how do we work around those rights they're very clear what's the what's the yeah. short answer to that
1: okay well short answer i don't know if i can do that for you <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> but basically um we as i mentioned at the beginning we do have that exemption when in, uh, in the national minimum wage for somebody who genuinely resides at the property and is treated as one of the family. But what that's doing is it's recognising that there is additional value to the contractual arrangement, such as being provided with the roof over your head and being provided with meals. So that need for national minimum wage to be provided to the individual is, is lessened. Now, what we don't have is an equal exemption provided for under the working time regs. And what we also know from uh, case law that's come through from Europe, because, of course, our regulations came originally from the working time directive, so it's a European-based piece of law that's been implemented domestically in the UK. So we can use the case law that has gone through Europe and, and has been applied by various different member states to give us a steer on what working time actually is, and this is an important thing to consider before we start thinking about exemptions, that is it just when they're actively engaged on working activities in the same way that the Mencap case broke down, if you're asleep, you're not, if you're awake, you are. It doesn't really work like that with the, with the working time regs. What we know is that if the individual has to be at the place of work or near the place of work and is at the disposal of the employer, so is ready to take action when they are called upon, that is considered to be working time. Now, this makes it quite challenging when we think about this live-in arrangement, because the theory, really, I suppose the the major benefit to having this sort of live-in style is that the employer has somebody around all the time. That's, that's the benefit, you know, that they're pottering about the house and they can call on them as and when they need it. So we haven't got a really clear exemption. In order to start assessing how people are, are achieving this, we have to really dive into the detailed um, exemptions and exclusions that we do have built into the regulations. Now, it might just be worth mentioning, as you said, David, the 48-hour maximum working week, is an employee can opt out of that, subject to them giving a notice period if they choose to change their mind. Um, And there is a common misconception that the working time regulations can be opted out of full stop. But that's not the case. It is only the the, uh, individual's right to opt out of 48-hour week Um, anyway. All of the other ones that you mentioned, the 20-minute rest break, the 11-hour daily rest, the 24-hour weekly rest, the only way they can be amended really is either if an exemption applies or if there's some sort of um, a workforce agreement in place. So shall we have a look at those exemptions then? Should we start breaking those down?
0: Yes, I think we should. I think we should. Okay. Where do we start with that?
1: Where do we start? So For the purpose of the conversation, I think it's worth mentioning section 19, which is domestic service, because I've had this query a lot over the years that people say, well, if they're a domestic servant, then the regulations don't apply. Um, For a kickoff, I would say, I don't want to assume that PAs should be shoehorned into this. We don't actually have um, a statutory definition that gives us much of a steer as to what we consider domestic servants to be. I often think about it like the typical. You know, maids, butlers, cooks—people who were employed to care for the property and the home itself. Um, whereas PAs, I mean, you have got more experience than me on this. that PAs have a much more rounded set of duties.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think um, I was just reminding myself here of the um, def- various definitions that have been used for a domestic servant, and I think um, while it is working, somebody in a private household. Um, certainly personal assistants providing personal care are not always working in the household for a start. They are potentially working outside of the home. They're doing tasks that potentially be kind of specialist tasks that require specialist training. I think it's designed an intention to represent, you know, people doing very kind of, as you said, kind of old-fashioned old work in the home that we would associate with the term domestic servants, cleaning, um, housekeeping, that kind of thing. I think it's a stretch yeah. on any definition.
1: And I would add to that that in truth, it's not all that useful anyway, because if we look at the detail of Section and the domestic servant exemption, actually, there's only very key specific rights that are exempted and others that are not. And the ones that we tend to want to avoid when we're thinking of living care are the 20-minute rest break, the daily rest, and the weekly rest, because we're wanting that continuity of support throughout the week. Those three are not even exempted by the domestic service provision. So basically, forget it. We're not worth it. We would never apply it. It's very rarely appropriate in living care situations.
0: And just to add, so I've just found that, so it, to give us a steer, and what I've always found quite useful here is that um, Health and Safety at Work Act has an exemption, exclusion in itself for domestic employment, Section 51, exclusion um, a- a- applicable to domestic service. And what I think its definition is quite interesting and probably is a, as good a steer as any. What amounts to domestic service will be dependent on the nature of the work. And so it's important to carefully consider the employee's duties, including the including in terms of any employment contract. An employee will only be a domestic servant if their job roles and responsibilities are exclusively domestic in nature. Employees whose role extends beyond domestic duties are not considered to be employed exclusively as domestic servants. And therefore, Section 51 this exclusion does not apply. Domestic service is likely to include the wide range of personal services ordinarily offered to and in a household. So I think that's a useful definition, isn't it, in terms of some kind of steer, just to put that, that to bed if there is this, you know, a temptation to just say, well, you're in the home, you're a domestic servant. I think we know, and anyone working here at Payments, or who's talked to anybody or understands why somebody needs a PA, particularly to live in, that there's going to be, the duties are going to extend beyond that. Yeah. So where does that leave us? Where have we got to? (laughs) Okay, so now
1: we've got to be thinking about: well, do we have a possible exemption under Section Twenty, which is unmeasured working time? Now this might well fit into a scenario where the worker doesn't necessarily have to be particularly vigilant to the service user's needs, to um, you know, making sure that they're watching an individual around the clock. So. Unmeasured working time, I'm going to read it to you because I think it's worth exploring the language of the, the regulations. Exemptions apply in relation to a worker where, on account of the specific characteristics of the activity in which he is engaged, the duration of his working time is not measured or predetermined. I'm going to break there and say, of course, lots of PAs are put on a working arrangement where the, contra- the contract essentially is paid for according to the time output so even a care plan perhaps will set out how many hours of support are needed on a day or in a week so the contracts often say you will be paid x amount of hours per week that is a measured contract that's something that has reference to the output that's expected okay so moving on the wording says or can is isn't predetermined or can be determined by the worker himself this is providing some level of autonomy then on the part of the worker and it gives the examples uh, of managing executives or other persons with autonomous decision-taking powers family workers useful to note here particularly if we've got somebody who is residing with the with, with the employer And workers officiating at religious ceremonies and so on. So what we've got there is a list of examples that are saying these are people who either their work can't be measured by time, perhaps, or by any other measure. Um, Maybe, for example, we might have a reference more to the service that they're providing. So let's say, for example, David, I say to you, right, go and write me two articles on something. It doesn't matter to me whether or not it takes you two hours to write those articles or five hours to write those articles. It's the output that's relevant. So it might well be that uh, that's the type of situation where we can say this is unmeasured work. Or, of course, in situations where perhaps you have a family worker, maybe they happen to live with one of their family and they just live there. This is genuinely their home as well, but the kind of around. They can stop and check on mum, let's say, as and when is needed. They get to do the pots and the dishes and the housework as and when they choose. They have a huge amount of autonomy in the way in which they do the work. It may well be that in that case, we can apply the unmeasured work exemption. And the advantage to that is that it does give us a complete exemption from those key rights we were talking about. The daily rest, the weekly rest, 20-minute rest break, and the 48-hour maximum working week are all automatically exempt.
0: But a couple of warnings there, a couple of th- flags that, that spring to mind listening to explain it. And those are, firstly, it's the, it, there seems to be a contradiction in as much as the the, the the necessity for autonomy is problematic. Because if you, in most cases, if somebody wants to live in... Uh, package the PA is less likely to have the autonomy by the very nature of the fact that they're needed to be there all the time or at least most of the time or potentially all of the time so and, and I think being that autonomous and living in would require there to be other other sources of care around so informal care to enla- enable that PA to have a, some autonomy about how they provide the work. so it's not saying it can't happen but it, it feels like there's a I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it. A slight yeah, a slight contradiction in as much as how autonomous are you really if you're if you have to be there.
1: And that's exactly where we have to go when we're analysing this and whether or not that situation is um, gonna get the employer facing some sort of a liability or not. If we can establish that there is that level of autonomy, that there is a lot of flexibility, then fine, this exemption is going to apply. But of course, in so many cases where a living care arrangement is is organised, actually there is a need for very significant vigilance, looking after the individual, and that individual cannot be left alone. Now, if they can't be left alone at all, they need around-the-clock support. Then your instincts are to say, well, surely this is measurable time that an individual has to work. Surely we're looking at a higher sense of uh, that duty of obligation that the employee has. And that flexibility really does not exist. So I think the starting point should be having a look at what the needs are of the person receiving the care and support. And let's have a look at that care plan. Let's have a look to see how um, distinct the care needs are now I think you might remember a number of years ago David we were looking at a couple of cases that tackled this question over living care didn't actually tackle it from the employment law perspective particularly the reason at least it was being focused on was because it was a medical negligence case medical negligence cases so so an individual with suffered serious illness illnesses needing around the clock care and support And they were trying to determine what the compensation should be. And the courts had to analyze these provisions that we're talking about today in order to judge whether or not it was possible to simply put one carer into the home with them on a full-time basis, and that was enough. And they said, no, because of the specific needs of the individual, because there was a risk to their health and well-being, if the worker left, you could not consider it to have that level of flexibility where unmeasured workers would be appropriate. They needed to organise a shift pattern to ensure that somebody was there twenty four seven.
0: Right. Okay. And also the other the other thing I would add to that not to not to I feel like I'm really we're really attacking the uh, the uh, unmeasured work time except but I suppose that's our job. It's your job to do that to unpick it. I mean, is that you mentioned family workers. Um, in there so managing executives family members or or um well we we'll ignore the third one but family workers specifically there's another issue there and as much as direct payments isn't and wasn't intended to kind of create paid employment for informal carers so there'll be a concern from funding bodies about that and something they need to consider you know we know that uh, family members living at the same address are exempt and should not really be employed um to provide support unless the local authority is satisfied that that is the best way uh, to meet that person's needs. Um, they, of course, can apply an exclusion to that, but they will also be concerned about, you know, if if someone's autonomous, they're living at home, part of the job is to support them in a way they normally would as an informal care, anyway, which they have under the CARE Act their own support potentially they can be assessed requiring support as a carer so does that limit further the use of that exclusion if if one of the the ways it would be applied is to kind of look at the fact that they're a family member potentially sharing some of those duties anyway so I guess it just muddies the water mm. a little bit more as well and is something to consider.
1: Well, hope is not lost entirely. We do have another exemption from the working time regs that actually does apply on quite a regular basis. I would say. Now, this one, it comes from Section 21, and that's a special case worker. Now, I want to just dive into this because it's interesting to note that I think the exemptions here are, sorry, the examples are slightly misleading. So what Section 21 says is that exemption from the working time regulations apply in relation to a worker where the worker's activities, stressing those words, the worker's activities Involve the need for continuity of service or production, this is where it gets misleading, as may be the case in relation to services relating to the reception, treatment or care provided by hospitals or similar establishments, residential institutions and prisons. So with these exemptions then, or sorry, examples, what what it's doing is it's making us think about the employer's needs and demands. Hospitals, we're thinking, yeah, around-the-clock care, around-the-clock treatment, Um, you know, similar facilities that have that need for for anyone, frankly, individuals to come in and work around the clock. However, the case law has developed to say, no, 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 no. What we should be doing is not putting the emphasis of this particular wording. What we should be doing instead is focusing on the worker's activities. So it's when that individual has to continue working. Now, anybody who has talked to me over the years on this particular point will be very familiar with these
0: two examples.
1: I'm going to go. <laughs> can, I, can I guess? Go can on. I guess?
0: Number one, I'm going. I'm thinking airplanes. I'm thinking long haul flights. Yes. I can't remember the other one now, but that's that. Was, but it's a great example.
1: The pilot cannot break, stop <laughs> and take a 20-minute rest break just because he's been flying for six hours. He cannot do it. It is quite clear by the very nature of his activities he's got to get through. And what's the second one? Can you remember?
0: Oh, do you know, I can't remember. I, that, I'm done with that one. because <laughs> I always imagine being on the flight and it just it, it needing that pilot to be on the ball. But no, what is the second one? The second one, one is a surgeon. One. Yes, of course, of course. You get of course, very, course,
1: very, yeah. very long surgeries that take that specialist skill, and it's not possible to simply stop in the middle of a surgery and have somebody else come in and take over. Now, while we're thinking about hospitals, even there's been a number of cases that tackled nurses. Whether or not it, you know, nurses were able to say that they, you know, they they're exempt from it because they need to continue. And actually, in many cases, they said, "No, it's possible for you to organise your shift patterns in such a way." The workers' activities can be halted, stopped, and, and so, yeah, you need to make sure that you organise the staff accordingly and make sure they get their rest breaks. So that leads us on to the question of how does this or how could this exemption apply in the position of um, uh, direct payment employers? Why would this possibly apply? Now, I've got a number of examples there as well. Can you remember any of those? <laughs>
0: In, in cases where it would apply. It yeah, would I apply. think um, what we talked about, haven't we, special case work and special case workers, uh, I think um, where the demands or needs of the employer or person receiving support are such that continuity is sufficiently important. Is that one of the examples we'd look at? Absolutely. So, for example, someone with dementia or um a condition similar whereby the same person is fundamentally important to their well-being and and the support they're receiving that's a good argument under this under this exemption
1: absolutely so i've had calls from parents in the past to maybe they are taking on a, a couple of carers to look after their child and they say that one of the major benefits to having somebody come in whether it's on a a permanent residential arrangement or whether it's on these like two week on two week off type arrangements that actually the change in their environment the change in the people around them causes extreme distress and the whole purpose of putting somebody in the home is actually to create that solid family environment that's the need for that particular worker to continue through and not take those rest breaks so that is a classic example of where it would be appropriate to apply the special caseworker exemption. Now then, what needs to be highlighted is this particular exemption isn't just a catch-all, right, yes, we can do that. We can apply the exemption. We don't have to worry about rest breaks at all. This is actually subject to Section 24, which is that when an individual... Um, is a special case worker, Section 24 operates to say you must give them compensatory rest. So, compensatory rest is basically saying if they've missed out, let's say on seven nights worth of the daily rest, they must take it at another time.
0: Right, okay.
1: That's where our two week on, two week off comes in, doesn't it? During the two weeks off, they're getting the compensatory rest. And we've also got to remember is that when we're doing, when we're applying this compensatory rest provision, again, like you rightly said at the beginning, we've got to do so in a way that is safe for the worker. It's no good sort of saying, "Yep, yeah, we're applying this rule and that's that.
0: And I was just looking that up because that is the one I, I, I remember in, in, in theory, it's Regulation 8, isn't it? Pattern of work. And actually looking at our exclusion document, that's, there's no exemption from that pattern of work. Provision which says, where well, the pattern according to which an employer organizes work is such as to put the health and safety of a worker employed by him at risk, in particular because the work is monotonous or the work rate is predetermined, the employer shall ensure that the worker is given adequate breaks. So it's a kind of catch all, isn't it? It's the working time act work saying, don't, you know, and if, if, if that exemption doesn't apply to unmeasured work time or indeed, sorry, to special case worker, take a step back. Is this safe? You know, is this going to create risk? Is there a better way of organising it? Despite the need for continuity, you know, what about the need of your staff and their safety? And it's, I think, is that how you read it? It's certainly my kind of layman's reading of that that provision. Yeah. Okay, so what's our next exclusion then?
1: There is another exclusion that relates to shift workers. But to be honest, it's not really relevant to living care. That's when an individual by the nature of their work are actually doing patterns where the, the shifts are split. So I think the ideal example of that would be when they do maybe half an hour for breakfast, half an hour at lunchtime, half an hour at tea time. So they're actually perhaps only doing an hour and a half, two hours a day, but it's split over the, over right. the period of the day. So it's sort of recognized that there's already, uh, to some extent, sufficient break. Now, It's also worth noting here that there are provisions for these rights to be amended or exempted by a workforce agreement. So it has the same sort of effect as a collective agreement where you would expect a union to get involved. But a workforce agreement is when the employer has consulted with the majority of the workforce. I'm saying the majority of the workforce because, of course, most individual employers don't have huge numbers of workforce. So my advice, rather than go through the process of appointing a a colleague representative, my advice is that you consult with the majority of the workforce. Now, if the workforce are agreeable to it, they can sign an agreement that amends or um, excludes altogether some of these rights. But I just want to give a really stark warning that there is a lot of formality to the way that's done. ILG are ready with guide notes and and documents to help with this process, but the formality is essential in order to make Mm. it valid. And one of the key principles here is that it's got to have been done prior to engaging individuals on this style of work. So if we're going to be amending those rights, they've got to have agreed to it in advance. So this is an ideal opportunity to say to any support teams who are just setting up a new um, direct payment, they're just setting up a new care plan and and wanting to put staff in. If you think that the working time regulations don't have an easy exemption, you're not sure, a workforce agreement may well be the plan, but you have to get this sorted first. So please do call ILG and we'll get through it.
0: Wow, so we've looked at the working time regs, national wage regulations, um, how they can be applied and the exclusions, um, the main exclusions relevant to direct payments and, and individual employers. Um, I think my, my main kind of takeaway is that we, you know, is fact-specific. Um, you need to understand a person's needs, what the, the budget they have, the amount of informal care they have going in, how many PAs they want and why they want those PAs as to even begin to put a care package together that's robust um, and lawful. And that's what you're looking for. We don't have a ready-made template that's going to apply every case. We need time to make an analysis.
1: Absolutely, yeah. It's very much like we were talking about in the employment status. You know, facts, 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 facts. So, so important when we're analysing whether or not these rules and exemptions can apply. Um, I would say we do have living care contracts. So if anybody is interested in that, particularly if we've got a worker who is there and we, we know that they've got this unmeasured type of arrangement, we can structure contracts according to our policyholders' needs. So absolutely get in touch with us. Um, And do keep in mind for anybody who perhaps has listened to this and is a bit concerned about packages that might already in place and concerned about whether or not uh, the regulations do or don't apply, give us a call. We can talk it through with you. Um, Remember that the workforce agreement, if that is something that you're interested in, is great for a new package, something that has been agreed and discussed in advance, but don't think that that's the solution to a situation that is already in existence.
0: Great. Thanks, Rachel. And remember, um, we will be uh, posting any documents we've mentioned today. So the working time regs, summary, the exclusions, uh, sorry, exemption summary. Um, our contract templates will all be uh, easily downloaded below this podcast on the ILG website. So do check that out. And I think All that's left to say then is thank you very much for listening and next time we're going to be talking about annual leave. What are we going to be covering on annual leave, Rachel?
1: We are going to look at the most recent changes to annual leave because of COVID. We've got PAs who have had to work the year through and haven't been able to take their annual leave for very understandable reasons. So we'll have a look at that because we're getting a lot of calls through. Still about uh, any carryover opportunities there might be. And we're also going to have a look at uh, applying annual leave and how tricky that can be to atypical workers.
0: Brilliant. And that's what we'll leave you with: 12.07% fun uh, games. <laughs> Alright, lovely. Thanks Rachel. Thanks
1: everyone. We'll see you later. Thanks, bye.